together. Mike, Sarah, Marissa, how are you? Happy holidays, everybody. Yeah, happy holidays. It's good to be cozy. It's like, um, yeah, very wintry outside my window right now. This is the first holiday episode with Marissa and Sarah on as co-hosts. As right? full co-hosts, full-fledged. All right, well, welcome. Full pod squad members. They were telling some good stories in prior episodes, I know. I know. It makes it feel more festive when we're all together. Because isn't that what this time of year is all about? You get a little bit of time to reflect. Being by yourself. No, Mike. No. No. It's about togetherness. It's catching up with people that you really care about. Yes. Gathering around a fire. By yourself down into your Hot chocolates. Spoken like a true introvert, Mike. Okay, no matter how you celebrate the holidays, it's fine by us. <laughs> we just want you to be happy and healthy and thinking about the prairie. Yeah, we have some great stories in this episode. I'm super yes, excited do. to share them. We sure do. And we start out with this progression from early in your career to kind of like reflective at the end of the season where some people are home on their home prairies and then other folks are just thinking about why they love the prairie so much. I love the holiday episode. These seasonal stories make me just so happy and so grateful for all the moments I got to have over the summer. They make me forget that it was 99 degrees out there. <laughs> there was so much sweat and thorns and other things. I only forget. <laughs> I only remember like the beauty of it. The Prairie Horizons, the new plant friends that I got to meet and see, and just all the fun moments with all of you. Yeah, and it's a good reminder that Prairie, the beauty of Prairie in all seasons, too. I think sometimes we get out, I personally anyway, get out in the Prairie most often in the summer. But the fall and the winter, um, for sure, has, has its own beauty. Absolutely. Sometimes it takes a little more work to notice it, but if you really get out and look... There are still a wide variety of colors out there in the winter, and it has its own beauty for sure. Yep. It does. Well, let's hear some stories. Are you all ready? Let's yeah, let's go. So my most memorable experiences here at the refuge um, would be my first week of work. The very first day I came to work sat at my desk my biologist Brandon and my supervisor Andy came up to me and was like hey how's it going nice to finally meet you and I'm like hey guys finally cool to meet you guys like in person um and then shortly after a little little meeting I um went out into the field with Brandon and we did a four mile square pair count survey and um I've never did anything like that before it was very fun. And during that survey, I was able to get sworn into office. And how many people can say that they were sworn into office doing field work? Not many. I can guarantee that. And um, so that was very fun. Um, the next day, we also did the four mile square count. But this time it was on an airboat. Alvin, so, I have to ask you, what is a four mile square count? Basically, it, you are um, in an area and you're just counting duck pairs and, and to see how many duck pairs there are in a four square mile area. Any species? Correct. Correct. Yep. All duck species. 
And then after we uh, got done with the airboat, I was able to um, go out and fix fences. So do some maintenance work with our awesome um, maintenance guy. He is just an absolute gem. Um, So being able to like work out, work with him and um, also see our cows. So our wonderful grazers. Um, That was pretty cool. The following day, I was able to see goats. I had no idea we had goats on the refuge on our uh, auto tour road. And they're also our grazers. And uh, what else did I do that week? That The rest of the week, you know, it was just basic um, paperwork, CPR, uh, first aid, getting certified for that stuff. A few months later, I was cutting down some trees on our auto tour uh, road, and um, it was just me by myself. So I was cutting down trees. When I was done cutting them down, I would have to grab the trees and stack them on a big brush pile. And when I was doing that, I heard a bird. I'm like, what kind of bird is this? So I went to my phone, went onto this app, started recording the, the bird call. Well, the app you know, gave me the bird name and it was a wren. And um, then I decided to see what kind of call the the wren was making. So I found the, the correct call and it was just the most fun thing I've ever done while cutting trees. <laughs> the bird would like come close to me and then it would like back away and then it would come close to me and then it'll back away. Um, it was just great. I spent more time doing that than I really should have. <laughs> But it happens. Um, Another cool story. I was out um, putting up a bat detector. And where the bat detector is, we had a bunch of grazing cows. And the cows would just moo. And I also... Okay, obviously cows moo. But... um, Sorry, while putting up the bat detector, I also had to check on the cows to make sure they weren't, you know, going into the wrong areas. And um, uh, when I found the cows, I would move to them and then they would move back and we would just like be this back and forth thing. (laughs) But you have to make your job interesting, right? You just can't like go up to the cows and be like, oh, yep, there's cows there and then walk away. No, you got to like be friends with them. So... Allison, what I'm learning about you is that you're a true wildlife biologist because as you're doing all of this work, and I'm sure Sarah would agree, you're not, you're you're doing the stuff you're supposed to be doing out there, but you're also like, oh, look at this thing over here. Look at this cool bird that I just found. And oh, cows. Hello, cows. How are you? Exactly. (laughs) Sarah, don't act like you've never done that when you've seen a cow. (laughs) <laughs> trying to commune with the wildlife in their language. They are kind of fun to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm saying. Oh, gosh. It is a joy to have you here with us today and just feel your energy and your excitement about all of these amazing things you're doing as you start out your career. Allison, what's been your all-time favorite thing that you've done so far at the Refuge? Oh, my gosh. That is a loaded question. My all-time favorite thing. Oh, boy. I guess I would have to say... This is kind of quirky, 
but it deals with goats. <laughs> so our goats got out of their fence and uh, me and Brandon, my biologist, we had to corral them back into their designated <laughs> grazing paddock. So that would have to be the most fun thing so far. Um, the most, I shouldn't say the most fun thing, the most unique, quirky experience I've had to deal with. Probably when you were in school to be a wildlife biologist, you didn't think that that title would also include goat herder. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> oh my gosh. Sarah, what do you think? I love it. I really enjoy your enthusiasm, Allison. <laughs> and um, yeah, I agree totally with Megan that it's fun to sort of, I don't know, be brought back to my first job and think about what it was like when I was first out in the field and just all the all the extra stuff, like Megan was saying. It's fun to, um, to do the work itself, but then also all the little extra things like finding that wren and really getting to know the refuge that you're working on. That's fantastic. It is. Thank you. Thank you for all of the work you've done and never lose that spark of enthusiasm and joy. I will not. Thank you. That was fun. Allison Hart spent this past field season working as a biological science technician for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at Big Stone National Wildlife Refuge. Allison's fresh enthusiasm is just contagious. And what a great inspiration to notice and enjoy all those extra little experiences that are waiting for us out there in the prairie. We really are so fortunate to get to work and play in Minnesota's prairies and public lands. Our next guest is Veronica Harlem Vetus, who is a marketing consultant with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Division of Parks and Trails. Veronica is another person with a contagious level of enthusiasm for prairies and outdoor spaces. Well, I am a prairie fan for recreation. I find the prairie so relaxing and uh, just a peaceful place. I love all the variation that you have uh, in the prairie, not just for elevation changes, uh, but also for little things you can find, you know, the tall grass, the flowers. I, I just find the prairie is a magical place. Um, not only at parks, actually, there's this ride I do every year in the Driftless going up and down on um, gravel roads. And you can see for miles on end and it's all open and the wind uh, blows you sideways or backwards, uh, which is hard uh, when you're riding. But that feeling of being in the vast prairie is like nothing else, really. Um, for sunsets and sunrises again nowhere like the big open prairie um one of my uh favorite parks uh one of my many favorite state parks for wandering around the prairie is afton um the i'm part of the orienteering club and i've done many meets there and it's you know, the navigating gets extra challenging sometimes because it's all open. Uh, the the trees that you see in the prairie are uh, always, in my opinion, just more special because you have the single tree, the, the stand of trees 
in the in the middle of the prairie they just stand out glendale state park that park is just um, again lots of rolling hills uh can hurt your legs when um hiking around but the all the, the past flowers in the spring and the tall grasses wandering through there and you can you can just see all around you uh, just so 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 beautiful and so special in my opinion i uh, remember before the bison came to Minneopa, we um, that whole expanse where the bison live now was an open prairie and i remember hiking with my then uh, one-year-old in a backpack all the way up to the to the mill tower uh, and it was just such, such a beautiful experience to and, and so peaceful and relaxing right anytime you're in the prairie and every time i we go see the bison and drive the, the bison range now i i remember that i remember walking through that big expanse to climb up the hill uh, there's just a lot of variation in the prairie that sometimes i feel people don't see um people tend to prefer going to to the woods for for outdoor recreation but uh the prairie really has its magic that i uh personally enjoy so much uh, blue mounts another uh wonderful prairie park that i've enjoyed a lot uh, and it's an interesting prairie park because you not only have the the prairie and you think everything's gonna be flat around you but then you have the tall bluffs, the quartzite bluffs, um, out out of nowhere, apparently, right? And in the winter, the prairie, uh, and I don't know if this is an actual thing, but I always feel there's more snow accumulation in the prairie, and it makes it perfect for cross-country skiing. Uh, actually, last year, one of my first, one of my favorite winter days was cross-country skiing at William O'Brien with one of my best friends. We had so much fun just um, going in and out of the woods through the prairie, up and down. Um, same at Afton. Uh, one year we stayed at the yard with my family and then just hiked all over out of the yard. Um, did the orienteering course, the, the permanent course. And, um, and, and it was just this, this beautiful memory for me, you know, walking, trampling on the snow up and down in the prairie. Uh, same actually, now that I, the more I think about it, I, I have lots of winter experiences in the prairie. Uh, just the prairie calls me in the winter, uh, staying at Glendalo, same thing, coldest day of the year with my youngest uh, for her birthday trip <laughs> and uh, just walking again up Very cool. around the lake and through the prairie, observing everything and just fell in love with that park that winter, actually. I just love it. This is like a, a miniature overview of these amazing state parks where we can go visit prairie and hang out and have some fun times. That was a really amazing story from Veronica, describing so many of the things that I also really love about the prairie, like the incredible sunsets and sunrises and being able to see for miles. It makes my heart happy to think about. I also love how she eloquently describes aspects of the prairie that are familiar to those of us who are already experienced prairie lovers, but can be pretty unexpected for new prairie enthusiasts. 
um, such as the power of the wind out there. And the prairies are really rarely flat places and the incredible variation that you really don't discover until you get out in it. Veronica's story leads beautifully into our next story from a colleague of mine at the Nature Conservancy, Chris Helzer. Chris shares with us a story of a discovery of his own. And I really love Chris's story because it involves birds, admittedly one of my favorite taxa, but also because it highlights just how spending time out in the prairie observing what's around you can lead you to find and see unexpected things out there. Hey, Chris, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to have you here. Marissa and I are so excited to hear your story. Yeah. Well, I picked a bird story to make Marissa Yay, happy. Hey, bird nerds unite. <laughs> Especially <laughs> Yeah, before we this is, before we got on here, Marissa was showing us all of her new bird art. I know. All of her new swag she's got. And it all over the house. And it's nothing like um thinking about birds in the middle of the winter and get you excited for prairies in spring. When you were a kid no. and you used to go to nature centers and you would see like that big posters up of everything you're going to see on the walk or like the stuff that was in the tanks that you were going to look at. Did you ever have a thought to yourself like, man, someday I'm going to decorate my house like this? <laughs> no, I never did actually <laughs> as a kid. I'm sure some people did, but that, that was not me. I was just excited to get out on the walk. I was not thinking about house decorations. <laughs> oh, I definitely was thinking about it. I was like, someday when I have a house, it's going to look just like this nature center. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, Chris, on that note, we're we're ready. We're excited. Good. Well, I want to talk about birds because when I was in grad school, I studied grassland birds, and that was my world for a few years. And then gradually, as I got into being a land manager, I moved away from birds in some ways into plants and insects. Um, and I joke with people that birds are easy, that Basically, birds, you just have to think about habitat structure and that's it, right? Which is not exactly true, but it's fun to talk to bird people about that. Um, and so now I think more about insects. But but this story is about birds, and it goes back to grad school and my early career. And when I was in grad school, we would spend daytime counting grassland birds and measuring vegetation structure. And in the evenings, we'd go out and do something fun, usually in a prairie or a wetland. And I got interested in rails and in particular soras, just because I liked the call that they make. And it was one of those things where you almost never saw them. So it was like a challenge to find one and actually in person. So we would do playbacks and try to get them to come close Actually, one of the funny things that happened with that, one of my early discoveries with Sora's is we were out calling one and we heard it call back and we played it again and I heard it call back and it was getting a little closer. And then all of a sudden it got really loud and we figured out what it had done is it walked into a culvert and it was doing its call inside a, a metal steel culvert, which like amplified the sound. And we thought, this is an amazing adaptation that this bird has figured out to attract women, which is to get inside this amplification chamber. And I have no idea if it worked for that bird or if it's something that other birds did, but that was really neat. But the actual story I want to talk about was, uh, I think it was my second year on the job as a land manager. We were walking around uh, a, a restoration area and there was there were a couple of patches of wetland habitat surrounded by pretty much mowed or I think it was burned off grass, just no, no cover anywhere. 
and we spooked up a Sora at our feet and we watched it fly and then we watched it land in a patch of wetland habitat that was about the size of a bed, like a single, like a, a single person bed. And I thought, okay, this is going to be great. We're going to go get a good look at this bird. I know exactly where it is. Cause that's the thing with rails usually is that's their reputation, right? They land and they just like, they have this reputation for just being able to disappear and you can't find them. You have no idea how they're doing it, how they're disappearing. So I was with another person and the two of us walked up to this patch, keep an eye on it the whole time. We could see all around it. There was no way the bird was going to leave. And when we got up there, we didn't see the bird, of course, because that's it wouldn't be a good story otherwise. We walked up and there was the bird. Um, no, we didn't see the bird. And what we saw was there was vegetation that was, you know, some rushes and sedges and things scattered around. And then there was a pool of water, maybe the size of a bathtub or a little bit bigger. that looked like it was maybe, you know, eight to 10 inches deep. And there was a like a mat of algae across the top of it. And we just sat there and we kind of walked around. We kind of kicked around in the vegetation looking for this bird, no bird. And we, I, we were there, I would say, at least two minutes and just getting really frustrated. And we, we just sort of sat there staring dumbly at this, at this scene. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of that mat of algae, a little bump appeared that was about the size of a ping pong ball and just kind of lifted up the algae in this little bump. And I looked at my friend and I said, there's no way. And I reached down and I pulled the algae back and this Sora head looked right at me and then disappeared back under the, under the water again, which was the first time I'd ever heard that that was even a possibility. Nobody had told me that this was a possibility. And all of a sudden it clicked for me why rails are so good at hiding, because it's not that they're hiding in the vegetation always. It's that they can go underwater and apparently stay there for you know minutes at a time because that's how long we were standing there. And so for the next few minutes, we kind of waited for it to come back up again. And it did eventually come back up again. And I managed to, to uh, go run and get my camera in between two of these little things. I said, you stay here. Don't let it go anywhere. Got my camera, went and came back. And I got a picture of the next time it popped its head up. I got a picture of this little you know chicken head stick with its yellow beak sticking up out of the water at me. I got a magazine article out of it because I talked to some other wetland people and they didn't know anything about this. And I don't think I was the first one in the world to discover it by, by any means, but I was the first person in the circle of my friends to discover that Soros could submarine in the water before. So anyway, that was, it's a, it was a really quick story. Um, but it was something that I think, you know, it, it in biology or in ecology, and just being a naturalist, the fun things I think for me are the the times that you discover something for the first time for yourself, right? It doesn't matter if it's the first time that it's been discovered in the world. If it's the first time for you, that makes it really exciting. And this was the first time that I discovered that rails could live underwater for short periods of time. It's like prairie hide and seek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? No, Marissa, did I did not know, know that. that. I had no idea. I did not know that. I do know that rails and water birds in general are super hard to find. And now I have a better idea why I did not know they could do that. That's pretty cool. And, and you know, this was 
more than 20 years ago. Um, and I still, I'll, I'll talk to people every once in a while, just like this. And I say, have you ever heard of this before? And they say, no, which is why I decided this, maybe this is the story to tell because I can pass this on to some more people and they can yeah. hopefully have a better chance of finding rails. Than they did before. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you pulled the algae back, did you say found you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that moment of discovery on the prairie when you see something new that you've never seen before. There's such joy in the unexpected moments we share with all the pieces that make prairie, prairie. The plants, animals, wind, water, roots, microorganisms, and more. Chris's story of discovery made me smile because at the end, all he wanted to do was share that knowledge with others. And after all, isn't that what prairie is all about? connecting us to each other with experiences and stories. We are very grateful and honored that the stories continue as we hear from Farron Davis Anderson, Supervisor of Environmental Sciences for the Shakopee Metawakanton Sioux community. Farron shares a beautiful story of learning from an elder and discovering a traditional food that had been lost from their prairies for over 75 years and the effort it has taken to bring an amazing prairie plant and traditional food back to the community. Bonjour and dinawe magna duke, anin, Farron Davis, Anderson, and Dishnikaz, apachio magwich, bizendawig. And what I said there was, hello all my relatives, my name is Farron Davis Anderson. Thank you for listening to me today. Um, I'm the supervisor of environmental sciences for the Shakopee Metawakton Sioux community. And I've been working with the community for about seven years. And so I wanted to share a story about one of my favorite things that happened this summer. And that was um, a plant walk that we had scheduled with Hope Flanagan. And Hope Flanagan's an awesome elder and um, just knowledge holder, traditional knowledge holder. And she works with uh, the Dream of Wild Health. And she does a lot of uh, foraging and plant identification and uses of traditional or traditional uses of plants. And uh, so it was just an honor to have her out there. And um, so around Hochikata Tea, which is our cultural center that was just developed a few years ago, we hosted this plant walk. And so we've done a lot of thoughtful planning around that building. And there's been um, a lot of different native plantings. And so we've restored over 35 acres of prairie around the building. And then also adjacent to the building, they have different gardens and it's, um, you know, traditional plants, medicines and basically things for our community members to pick. And so when we were on this plant walk, um, we were walking around and, you know, just checking out different plants. And to our surprise, we found a prairie turnip. And so that was awesome because um, it just gave us an opportunity to look at this, you know, traditional food that's been lost because at Shakopee, we haven't found that plant and a Dakota person probably hasn't harvested that plant in over 75 years locally anyways. And so it was just so exciting to see that there. And I, and I, I went um, up to the plant and I was looking at it and I was like, wait, is that prairie turnip? And, it, and Hope came over and she looked and she's like, it's prairie turnip. <laughs> and so it was so awesome because, uh, again, we haven't seen that plant around and, and we've been trying to bring back these, you know, food sources. And so in the Dakota language, prairie turnip is called Timpsana. And so if you break that word down, I learned this from our Dakota language specialist, Will Crawford. Um, tea, it derives from tinta. 
and that means prairie in Dakota. And then psin, that means rice. So we also called wild rice psin in Dakota. And then na is like a, a term of endearment. And so that that word in Dakota literally means like uh, rice of the prairie that I endear. <laughs> Isn't that so cool? I just love that. And and so like in the Dakota language, there's these, um, it's a very descriptive language and you can learn a lot from like just knowing what those words mean and what parts of those words mean. And so I'm th- so thankful that we have, you know, our Dakota language specialist to help us out and put these things together. But it was just it was just a awesome, good feeling when you're out there because, you know, we harvested one of them. And again, like we had a bunch of youth with us, too. So that was special. And she our elder, um, Cindy Milda, who is actually the public education coordinator at Hochikata Tea. She was the one who showed she's like, we have to go to South Dakota usually to harvest these. And they um, and they usually, you know, harvest enough to sustain them throughout the winter. And so to be able to harvest it, you know, at Shakopee, they don't have to travel to South Dakota now because we've, we've established, you know, a small population at Shakopee. And so she was able to show us, you know, how you harvest it, you offer tobacco, and then um, what to do with the seed head. And so some people, they like to bury the seed head uh, and cover it completely, but others like to just put the seed head up and then just rebury the bottom of the plant after they take the turnip part off. And then usually you can braid if you have enough of them, a braid and they dry really well and they're a really good, um, you know, source of nutrients. And that was like a really important staple in the Dakota's, um, you know, historically the Dakota's diet throughout the winter. And so, um, yeah, it was just a really awesome experience to be able to see that, you know, prairie, um, prairie plant come back and to be able part of that, because I don't know if anybody knows anything about prairie turnips, but they're very hard to establish from seed. Like you just can't go out and throw the seed down and expect a bunch of prairie turnips to come down. It doesn't work like that. So we've um, actually have a a horticulture department and also our tribal gardens, Wajupi. They've really, um, they're the ones who should be credited with bringing them back because they've kind of figured out a way, they've figured out a way to get them to germinate. And now we've had these little tiny prairie turnips that we've been able to plant around the community. And now we're seeing them getting, they're getting to a point now that we can actually harvest them. So that was super exciting this summer. And I'm just super grateful that I was able to be a part of that. I love this story, Baron. I love thinking about prairie turnip as prairie rice that is dear to me. That is such a good descriptive term for like this life-giving food that that this plant is. I just love it. Yeah, it creates a great visual in your head of, of the species and the plant. That's amazing. And then also like that moment where you discover something that hasn't been seen for 75 years. Oh my word, you guys had to be, I'll use my grandmother's phrase, tickled. <laughs> to just, you know, you just yeah. had to be like so excited to be like, oh my gosh, there's prairie yeah. turnip. We were very, very excited. Yeah. So that, that was just this past summer then? Yeah, it was this past summer. It was right by Hochikata Tea. Yeah. yeah. 
That's oh, amazing. Man. So does the plant, when you rebury the plant after taking that tuber off, will it grow and put a new tuber out? I'm just, this is like, I have so many ecology nerd questions I want to ask. Yeah. So like that's the seed head. It'll, you're basically putting the seeds back into the soil <laughs> and then it's going to take a while. But there's actually been studies that have been done too. Like people have done their thesis on this that say that the populations actually thrive when you, when there's harvesting that occurs. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, you know, when you have kind of like sweet grass, sweet grass is the same way. So it needs to be harvested and it kind of like, you know, just send up a bunch of new shoots when you mm-hmm. do harvest it. And um, otherwise it's just kind of, you know, doing its thing. But, you know, we've, they found that sweet grass is the same way. So. Yeah, that's very cool. And it's amazing that, I mean, that's very cool that you've found a way to get them germinate and, and plant them all over. Do you have any idea, like, how many years it takes before those little plants get established and, and that you can, they're like ready for harvesting? So I think that those plants that we saw were, they were grown to little seedlings. So it was probably like about a year. And then after it had been planted, it was probably about four years before yeah. we saw like, you know, a flower and a, a turnip that was big enough to actually harvest. Yeah, a mature plant. I just feel like there's sometimes there's so many things we don't know about our our prairie plants, right? Like how long it takes them to become mature and all those sorts of things. So that's really cool. Yeah, very cool story. That is so cool. Thank you for sharing that. Migwitch Farron, this was so nice. Thank you so much for sharing this story with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome. Yes. That is so cool how the Dakota name for prairie turnip translates to rice of the prairie that I endear. That is just a great story, Farron. Thank you for that. And congratulations on your find. Um, you know, when I, when I look at this plant, it's just a beautiful little plant. I encourage you to look, to look it up if you haven't seen it before. I see this plant and I think about its role in native culture. And to me, it just provides a great example of why prairie is worth fighting for. And then at the same time, it's important to remember that it's just one of thousands of examples, as good as it is. Anyway, it's yet another way to think about how prairie sustains us. So next, we have another story about how prairie provides opportunities for discovery and how there's so often tradition and history in prairie and also how it's just an important place for making memories. All right. Well, I'm Scott Kedelka. I'm the Minneapolis area naturalist. And the story I want to talk about is really how I grew up with prairie. Uh, my great-grandfather had bought a piece of land along the Cheyenne River in southeastern North Dakota. And uh, so it included the valley. And then as the valley goes up into the what would have been, you know, the prairie and uh, and I think what my memories about that is how him and my grandfather never plowed um, this area up. And it really has a very um, beautiful oak savanna. Um, and all this is still here today. And I can just remember my brother and I, we would always spend most of our time just exploring uh, this prairie and playing out there. And uh, I can 
just think about how in many other places, you know, these places have been plowed up. My, my grandfather never wanted to do it. He, he would, of course, have cattle in there. Um, but even we'd had these um, woodland uh, mounds. And if you would just go down to the neighbors, you would see where they had been plowing them up for years and years. And my grandfather never, he always wanted to keep that part intact. And I think for me, it's just always brings back at how every time I go back to the farm, that's the first thing we do is we go for a hike through the prairie and we go out to this large cottonwood tree in the back 80 uh, of the farm where, again, you know, nothing has been plowed up. And I was uh, there a couple years ago with my nephew and niece and we're locking along and I run across of all plants, a prairie onion. And I was just so excited to think, you know, I'd always know that it was pretty diverse, even with the cattle um, being in there. But just the fact that suddenly I saw a plant that I had never seen before growing um, on this prairie, again, that had never been broken up. And it's such a key part, I think, of our family history and how we've looked at this landscape and how we want to always protect it. And this oak savanna, of course, you know, he's thinned trees out over the years and actually built his house out of oak, bur oak. And so if you can imagine building a house out of bur oak, it's continually to sink all these years. And so we have to put in metal posts to keep it up. But that house is so solidly built that there's no way that thing will ever fall apart. And, you know, it even goes into the whole idea of Christmas and winter and how we have, you know, because the prairie goes into the river valley and that's where we go sledding every year. So we're sledding across uh, the, the prairie that's still intact. And I think just those memories and, and that we're bringing my nephews and nieces and having those same memories um, and that love of prairie and the fact that they can identify, you know, there's a wild rose over there, or there is side oats gram over there, or there's a little blue stem. And uh, I think that's exactly why I love the prairie is just that diversity. And it's such a unique landscape. That's a really nice story. I love that, Scott. I love that you're sledding and you're teaching them prairie plants and then you're living in a burr oak house. I mean, how many people get to live in a burr oak house? It's not going to fall apart. It just might sink, right? Right. It's just going to sink into the ground. It'll never fall apart. Why is it going to sink? I'm just curious. Because it's so heavy wood. Like you would never build a house out of burr oak because it's such a heavy wood. Because it's so solid. So then you guys... Like a safe. <laughs> it's a safe. Yeah, you guys are fortified. You're basically making a basement right. without making yeah. a basement. Right. <laughs> I'm so glad we got to hear Scott share about spending time with his family. Thinking of prairie as a tradition is at the heart of our conservation efforts. We all work so hard together because prairie isn't just a thing that's out there on the land living. It is the reason why we live. Our spirits are deeply connected to it, and prairie is a place where we belong, and our memories are shared from year to year as the moments we spend become legacies we leave. 
Karen's story builds on the tradition of knowing our prairie relatives and forming bonds with them at an early age. Hi, I'm Karen Jokola. I wear a lot of hats, one of which is for the Xerces Society, where I'm a pollinator habitat specialist. And in that role, I partner with NRCS to provide technical guidance to conservation staff and farmers about habitat planning in, in working lands. Um, but today I wanted to share a few uh, favorite prairie experiences from my home life. So I was, I was going to tell you a little bit about how my family and I have been actively cultivating relationships with individual prairie members, we could say, which mostly means native plants and the, and the critters they attract. Um, I'm just hoping to paint a picture of some of the routines that we have that I, that I really cherish. So uh, for a little context, my husband and I run an organic vegetable farm and small native plant nursery on the edge of the Driftless area near Cannon Falls in southeastern Minnesota. Uh, we're situated on land that contains small pockets of remnant sedge meadow and dry hill prairie and oak savanna plant communities. And every year we collect a variety of native seeds from those communities and grow the plants out for sale to gardeners, as well as for my own prairie restoration plantings throughout our vegetable fields and farmstead. Um, I'm constantly tinkering and experimenting in our backyard with different types of habitat plantings. And in the last five years, we've also been raising children and um, becoming a parent caused me to slow down and bring my personal prairie stewardship ambitions to a smaller toddler scale. <laughs> For example, instead of working on clearing thorny invasive species in the back pasture, I've been focusing on expanding small native garden beds close to the house. And when I'm working in the garden, I almost always have a small helper with me. My daughter likes to dig holes and tuck in plants and, and sticks, uh, but she equally loves coddling millipedes and worms and crickets. And I'm always expanding my gardens or, or weeding them. And therefore, we're always on hands and knees next to the flowers that attract and bring in visitors. And I just love how we are so often interrupted by delightful and surprising little wildlife encounters like like squeaking hummy, hummingbirds or sleeping bees or suddenly apparent katydids or leafhoppers. Um, gardening like this creates a lot of room for conversation. We, we often talk about what and who we're seeing and sensing around us. Like this past summer, my daughter made up uh, a game and it always starts like this. Mom, how about you don't know anything about plants? <laughs> and then she teaches me all about her favorite plants nearby <laughs> and, and she feeds me the lines and she says, now you ask, what's this plant, daughter? And then and then I say that. And, and then she says in her best teacher voice, well, this is a plant with three leaves. And after the bees come to visit the flowers, we'll get little baby strawberries. <laughs> there are a lot of other plants that she does this with. And, but no surprise, our, our kids' favorite native plants are the kind that bear edible fruits. Um, but a close second is the category of some of those aromatic species like anise hyssop and bergamot and, and prairie sage. And unfortunately, my kids are, are not very adventurous eaters, but my daughter loves to go foraging with me to collect wild greens for our salads and soups, things like 
like violet leaves and nettles and cutleaf coneflower, or some foragers know that as something called sochan. So I guess you can see we're not really going on excursions to see like the prairie with a capital P, but we're routinely interacting with and, and getting familiar with prairie community members and and throughout the year too, not just in the summer. Because in addition to gardening, we collect fruits and seeds throughout the summer and especially in the fall. And seed collecting is an especially sweet thing to do together because it's such a treasure hunt and each of us appreciates different things on our walks. Uh, there can be so many, so much pleasure in, for example, like snapping off a stiff goldenrod seed head and shaking out all the winged seeds into the air. Or, or I have to say, I have a personal fetish for collecting yellow coneflower seeds because they just melt in your hand and they smell so good. Uh, and the seeds we collect as a family end up kind of decorating our living room as they're stored in paper bags clipped to a string of Christmas lights, which we found is is a great, safe, rodent-free place to dry them. <laughs> um, each one of these species gets handled throughout the winter as we crudely kind of separate the chaff from seeds using just common kitchen utensils like colanders and screens. Uh, we also stratify some of them in moist sand, or at least some of the ones that want to go undergo like winter-like conditions. And this also just kind of happens at our kitchen counter. Um, usually we set up a station where I process the seeds and sand, but then we also set up like a baking pan sandbox <laughs> so my daughter can play next to me and participate too. And of course, you know, so that's the winter. And then in the spring, all of us really enjoy the routine of playing in the warm, humid greenhouse as we seed and water and, and pot up individual seedlings for sale. And so beyond the nursery work and the gardening, uh, we also prioritized prairie stewardship as part of our routine weekend recreation. Often the activities are actual chores, like moving our 10 goats to new paddocks in, in Oak Savannah. But sometimes the activities are kind of fun, like an occasional prescribed burn or selecting many eastern red cedars to harvest and decorate for our holiday Christmas trees. Um, so, I mean, I could go on. I have so many tender little memories of watching my kids come to understand the gifts that prairie plants and animals offer and the kinship we all share. And I have to say, I'm aware that in a lot of ways, I have such a privileged and unique situation out here on the farm. But I really do think that the way that my family is developing relationships with prairie could also occur in home gardens and urban communities anywhere. I mean, maybe minus the goat chores. <laughs> and as I said before, my family doesn't spend much time in vast prairies or natural areas like you might see in western Minnesota. Uh, but when my children eventually do visit those landscapes, I think they'll feel at ease, surrounded by like, familiar faces, so to speak. I hope they'll feel a sense of belonging and purpose there, too. But until they're bigger and travel off the farm becomes a little easier... Uh, it feels pretty rewarding to simply just root down and care for the small bits of prairie in our own backyard. Karen, I love this story about your routines <laughs> with prairie. I don't know why I was getting like choked up just thinking about <laughs> like all of these. Well, because they're just beautiful moments and memories. No, I was. I still am. I like I'm a little bit choked oh, up just because it's it's so beautiful to think about. Mm hmm. 
prairie as a tradition. Yeah. I mean, and that you're passing it on. Yeah. I learned a lot from Karen there. That was educational as well. Thank you so much for that story. That game that Karen played with her daughter, that was possibly the cutest thing I have ever heard. But yeah, the Karen story, it was just full of insights into how prairie enriches our lives. And yeah, just so nice to hear how prairie and native plants are an important part of, of uh, Karen's life and her, and her family's life. And I know, you know, we, we say this quite a bit on the podcast, but her story does an excellent job of driving home the point that we can enjoy and learn from prairie in our own backyard. So next we have our final story. It is probably a little different from what you might expect uh, on this holiday episode, but I think it's wonderful. Enjoy. Uh, my name is Henry Panovich. Um, you might notice I have an accent. I was born in Europe. I used to be a German citizen. And uh, just to give you a little background, before I uh, retired, I uh, was a psychologist. I have a PhD from the University of Minnesota. But why I'm here in this podcast is because I was one of the people who started the Many Rivers chapter of the Prairie Enthusiast. The other people involved were Randy Schindel and Scott Siegfried. And I would have to attribute that Randy Schindel is actually the guy who infected me with Prairie. Um, so as I like to warn people that you, you get involved with Prairie. It's, it's a love affair. It's a disease. It's the, probably one of the best diseases you can find. Anyway, but to kind of give you a flavor how diseased I am about prairie, one day I sat down and I just wrote, what, does, what is prairie to me? Let me just read a few. Prairie remnants are the pieces where the wild heart can still be found. The crackling fires are the bird sounds of new prairie. Prairie horizon is where the earth and the skies are stitched together. It is, it is where, the, where my old heart remembers its early skipping days. It is, prairie is a place that's, that gives sight and sound to wind. Prairie kisses the pleasure centers of my brain. So this gives you kind of context the, the, to the extent that I'm diseased of, with prairie. But I, in um, an order, for instance, as a prairie enthusiast, we have three missions. One of them is to educate the public. Secondly, is to uh, uh, help people preserve, uh, I mean, preserve prairie, but then also to start new prairies. And so part of my education process is I'm involved with the Southern Minnesota Poet Society, and I, uh, they have always a meeting at my hobby farm and uh, experience prairie. And what I've done is in the past, I have, um, I take them out in the tall grass, and then I tell them all to sit down, and they're, they can't see each other. And then we just sit there maybe 10, 15 minutes and no talking. And I just want to kind of marinate them in, in the prairie. And uh, one thing I do also is uh, I like to take a nap in prairies. And I remember one t uh, time I laid down in a tall grass prairie and 
you know, is everything is grass around you and only the sky is above you when you lay down like that. And I actually fell asleep. And then, and I'm kind of guy, if I sleep for 10, 15 minutes, it's, it's like a charge. I'm, I'm ready to go again. And when I woke up, there were uh, turkey vultures flying over me. And I know all the jokes, you know, don't stick out your tongue and, you know, don't move and all those kind of things. But I was involved. But what, what touched me, the beauty of it, the gracefulness of it. And, you know, we have vultures have such a bad reputation. So, you know, as people kind of are condescending of him. So what I thought I wanted to do, write a poem about vultures and do some, you know, give them a positive image. Well, is the first line that came to me, which I kind of still like, but I didn't use was uh, meals by wheels, you know, because that whole thing would have set me up for kind of funny, kind of condescending kind of thing. I still like that line and I might do something, but I like what I like to do is read you a poem I wrote regarding the vulture. Um, and I think, you know, I'm kind of thinking I'm doing something like this for snakes, skunks, and all these animals that just don't get the right press, unfair press, basically. But here is uh, my poem, Bird Lament. Oh, what a hurt to be seen as unclean, an omen of bad endings. This rainwater mirror reflects my image. I'm a dignified bird. My body is smaller than an eagle, larger than a hawk's. I have a sunset red face, strong ivory beak, almond-shaped nostril. My head and neck are covered by fine, tan, folded skin. My shiny feathers go from deep brown to black, complete my formal appearance. I honor the death by ingesting them. In India, I'm a sacred bird. They say that I release, release the soul from the body. My scientific name is Catharis Aura, meaning purify breeze. My family celebrates being. We ride delicate winds like feather kites together, move in spiral circles, climb air stairwells in our skies. I never cause pain. I never take a single life. Can you make such a claim? So that's my, uh, so as you can see, as a hobby, I've become a, uh, a spokesman uh, uh, for, for, for turkey vultures uh, because they're wonderful, wonderful animals. What I like to do is read you some poems as part of the education, which is kind of interesting when you read, when I read some of these poems by other poets, uh, I can see the influence I had on them. And then I'm reading, not that I, you know, I need that, um, but I, I find it. Here's one written by Chris, Christina Flocker. Now she is my uh, stepdaughter. And uh, this is a poem that, that won a prize, actually, in, the pro, in a poetry contest. Grassland Lessons. You're the one who teaches me prairie. Father, not my blood, 
You entered my world 30 years after my conception. Your voice is as melodic as the rus rustle of wind through tall bluestem grasses. As you guide me down the faint deer trail on large, one large callous hand reaches out and scatters pods, neatly removes grain from stalks as you encourage new growth. I wade through waist high fiber in your wake, follow your bobbling beige head like a beacon. You turn back, patiently wait for me as I'm distracted by a flash of purple, a hint of pink, a leopard frog nestles close to the ground. Your love of this hallowed ground is infectious, steers me to new paths as I follow you. As we move, compass flowers spring behind us to direct those that follow how to spread fresh seed. So is, um, you know, one thing about poetry, you, you can say uh, something precise because you have to remember a poet is like a jeweler who builds a crown and the jeweler is very careful what, you know, what color of jewels he uses and the size and so forth. And in poetry, it's the same thing. And I think I just like to uh, read a poem I have written about Perry. And um, is it's hard for me to write a prairie poem, actually. So this is something that isn't, you know, um, writing poetry is sort of like baking cookies. Sometimes, you know, they're not quite brown when you open the oven and you have to put them back in. Well, this one isn't quite brown yet. It might have to go back into the oven of, uh, you know, of refinement. But this is, so this is an attempt. Um, August Prairie Nuptial. Thunder stumbles east, raindrops sleep on ground, the earth slowly exhales. We, we walk next to each other, hands touching. Cloud windows open, warm sunshine smiles, clean wind cones, big blue stem grasses. Hungry bumblebees crowbar into bottle jensen flower. Square stemmed cup plant now holds water. A meadowlark dries on a compass plant. Monarchs cluster and drink at Prairie Blazing Star Bar. Like a new bride and groom, we look at each other. We have no need for words. Um, so this gives you an example of uh, the efforts of describing prairie poetically and educating people. And uh, also what I have done, there is uh, um, the League of Minnesota Poets. They have uh, every year a, a contest uh, of, uh, of poetry in different categories. And I sponsor a category 18, Bring Back the Prairie Award. And the first prize winner gets 50 bucks and the second 20 and 10. So you can say in poetry, you don't get rich, uh, but it is exciting. 
That's the big benefit, like Prairie. And um, the thing is, when with Megan, you know, she always talks about relationship because, you know, it's all relationship. And we have to be careful that, for instance, like we use the word spring. There isn't such a thing as spring. But what really is that the days get longer, it rains, the earth warms, seeds start opening, the trees opening leaves. And that whole process of relationship, we summarize by the word of spring. Um, so we need to be careful that the word stands for the symbol. It's never the thing itself. Hey, I love those poems. Those were really good poems. I mean, I'm, you know, and you know one reason why they immediately transported me to the prairie. They, in my brain, maybe in some other universe, like I actually went to another prairie when I heard those poems. Um, I know my favorite line was prairie is a place that gives sight and sound to the wind. Yeah. I mean, what imagery does that conjure up? Like you can just... You would just feel it like you can f imagine yourself on a prairie hillside looking at the vista and feeling that wind <laughs> blow the grasses and the wildflowers and you with it. It just poetry is a really good way to connect us to the places that we love. And it made me think, you know, there is prairies have so much like it fills all your senses. You know, there's smells and there are sounds and you feel the wind on your face. And yeah, I feel like those poems really captured all of that. You bet. One of the phrases I really liked, and I don't remember which <clears throat> poem I was in, but somewhere along the line, along the way, he said a metaphor, a prairie is a metaphor for harmonious living. And I thought, you know, that really captures so much of. Yeah, I don't know how things we talk about in the podcast, right? And how things work together and how the prairie works together and, and you know, and how we need to work together um, in life and how we come together at the holidays. Mm -hmm. I also really loved how Henry talks about being infected by prairies. And, and one of yeah. the poems he read was actually someone else talking about how he infected or his mm -hmm. love for prairies was infectious. And <laughs> I just feel like all the stories that we had this episode are just nice examples of how we all are infected by the prairie and how we experience it differently. It's mm -hmm. nice diversity. You bet. It is nice diversity. Diversity and connection, which is what prairie is all about. And it's what our lives are all about, just like Marissa said. And so it's just beautiful to end, to end out, to round out the year with some good prairie poems and some excellent prairie stories from all of our guests. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Me too. Yes. Lovely as always. And okay. looking forward to next season. Absolutely. There's so many more prairie stories to tell, but not right now because we've got to run and spend some time on prairies that we love and with people that we love also and we hope love us too so we're gonna wish you a safe and peaceful holiday season while you're watching the prairie grasses lodge with snow and the little voles scurry underneath <laughs> wishing you many more discoveries on the prairie next year and we'll see you then happy holidays, happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.